0: Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast, your fortnightly update from the world of metabolic medicine. I'm your host, James Nurse. With over 1,500 metabolic diagnoses, there's always lots to talk about, so be sure to subscribe to never miss an episode, but not before listening to the latest podcast on treatment in lysosomal storage disorders. Hello. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Robin Lackman of the Charles Dent Metabolic Unit in London. Dr. Lackman's paper, Treating Lysosomal Storage Disorders, What Have We Learned?, was featured in a recent virtual issue looking at inherited metabolic disease in adults. And Robin himself is a, a rare beast, a specialist in an adult IMD. Robin, thank you for joining me. Pleasure. So in the introduction to your paper you observe that the lysosomal storage disorders are similar but also highly variable. What do you mean by that and why is it important as far as treatment is concerned?
1: Well I think they're a group of disorders that on a biochemical and histological basis have a lot of similarities. They're due to an inability to break down a macromolecule within the lysosomal system which then accumulates leading to storage Uh, which you can see under the electron microscope, and that's what originally led to their description. And biochemically, the vast majority of them are due to deficiencies of lysosomal hydrolases, although not all. So at that level, they're very similar. But when you translate that into clinical presentation, they're incredibly variable. And that's because depending on what macromolecule can't be broken down, that will determine which cells and which tissues are affected. And that can be very different for different macromolecules because different molecules are expressed in different tissues. And therefore, you can see incredibly different clinical presentations, both between disorders and, in fact, within the same disorder, can present with incredibly variable presentations and probably should be on the differential diagnosis of nearly every specialty, albeit somewhere quite close to the bottom.
0: And obviously, the focus of your paper... You're talking about what we've learned about treatment and within treatment you're really concentrating on enzyme replacement therapy or ERTs. In heresy metabolic diseases they're often the result of enzyme deficiency so the idea of replacing the enzyme seems like a good one. It's not that new an idea is it? Not at all. It's It's been around as a practical option for 30 years now and was probably
1: theoretically a practical solution from the first time people realized that a number of inherited metabolic diseases were due to enzyme deficiencies what's at the moment unique about lysosomal storage disorders is that once you had the recombinant technology available to clone the genes and to, to make the enzyme in tissue culture in sufficient quantities to put it back into a patient for lysosomal enzymes there is actually a mechanism for them to get from the patient's circulation from the blood into the cells where they need to be and not just into the cells but into the lysosome of the cell whereas for most enzymes involved in inherited metabolic disease phenylalanine hydroxylase for instance you could make it in large quantities uh, in tissue culture and inject it into patients but it wouldn't do any good because it doesn't get to where it's supposed to be so for these lysosomal hydrolases uh, the body itself has a mechanism that Means that enzyme replacement therapy, making the enzyme and injecting it into the patient, is a possible means of treatment for a number of tissues. Probably, in principle, all tissues apart from the brain.
0: And you mentioned it's recombinant technologies making these. Were they ever harvested from anywhere else, or have these enzymes always been manufactured?
1: They were. So, um, Gaucher disease is the the paradigm. And we've had enzyme replacement therapy for Gaucher disease since the early 1990s. And in fact, you're right, the original enzyme was not made uh, by recombinant technology. It was purified from human placenters. And they, in the States, collected enormous quantities of human placenters and processed these to make uh, what was in those days called seridase, the enzyme relatively quickly within a few years that was replaced by a a recombinant enzyme made in Chinese hamster ovary cells but initially yeah it was purified from human tissue.
0: I would imagine we'd be stuck fighting Gwyneth Paltrow for those (laughs) presenters (laughs) now. And she undoubtedly
1: pay even more for them than
0: Genzyme, probably. Um, There's obviously been an explosion in the number of available treatments in the last 20 years with seven new treatments you've commented on in your paper in the last decade so uh, personally I've seen the incredible benefit of Enzyme replacement therapy and infantile Pompe disease. What's the situation amongst your adult patients? If we're going to maintain our adult focus here,
1: I can certainly come to Pompe. I mean, I think it's probably worth starting with Gaucher again because that was the original treatment, and it was the huge success of enzyme replacement therapy for Gaucher that led to the development of it as an approach to so many other lysosomal storage disorders now. And for Gaucher, it's undoubtedly a life-transforming treatment. Uh, By giving patients the enzyme intravenous every two weeks, you can reverse most visceral features of the disease. As I've said, it doesn't enter the brain. Uh, And so the organomegaly is reversed. Bone marrow disease melts away. And really, from most points of view, this is now a treatable, almost curable disease, although you have to keep giving the treatment long term. And that would apply to more adult patients than pediatric patients. The vast majority of patients with type 1 gauchyase disease are adults rather than children. Uh, And so that huge success and indeed the fact that empires or pharmaceutical empires at least were founded on the basis of that huge success uh, led to a lot of other people getting interested in developing new enzyme replacement therapies. In fact, not just for other lysosome storage disease, but also for Gaucher disease. We now have worldwide three different enzymes available for Gaucher disease plus, and we might come on to this later, some oral treatments as well, all of which are making uh, their companies healthy amounts of profit out of treating what is a very rare disease. When it came to other diseases, unfortunately, results were not quite as uniformly successful. And Pompe is a good example, actually. So Pompe is a great example of a disease where the phenotype of the disease you see at the infantile end of the spectrum, where there's essentially no residual enzyme activity, is completely different from the phenotype you see at the other end of the spectrum, the patients I see uh, with adult onset disease who do have significant residual enzyme activity. And the real difference is the involvement of cardiac muscle. So in babies with Pompe disease, not only do they have a very rapidly progressive skeletal myopathy, but they also have this cardiomyopathy, which is fatal untreated within the first year of life. Uh, whereas adults have the skeletal myopathy but it's much more slowly progressive and they don't really have heart disease and so they present in a very different way to the children and it's an interesting example of a condition where the initial clinical trials were done in the pediatric population rather than the adult population and that was in many ways quite a brave thing to do but it's because they had hard outcomes you could do a clinical trial for really a very short period of time three to six months in infantile pompe disease and demonstrates an improvement in mortality, which is you know, the best outcome of all. So although it's very rare, uh, you can generate very convincing data in a relatively short period of time. And indeed, as you say, uh, enzyme replacement for infantile Pompe is a life-saving therapy. Uh, these babies no longer die within a few months of presentation. Uh, they survive. And if you get in early enough, uh, they survive ventilator-free, And a number of them become independently mobile things that were never seen before. And you're right, that is a a great success story. In adults, it's not quite such a success story. But again, patients do improve. So when you treat adults with late onset Pompe disease with enzyme replacement therapy, uh, you will see some improvement in muscle strength and function in the first 6 to 12 months. And then, unfortunately, you can't regain all of the function of damaged muscle, but that seems to stabilize out. But unfortunately, over time, and we've now had enzyme replacement therapy for Pompe disease for getting on for 15 years, those benefits begin to wane and the disease progresses. And the question we have to ask ourselves, is the disease progressing at the same rate in the treated patients as it would have done in untreated patients, you've just delayed that progression, or are you actually uh, buying them extra gears of quality of life by delaying that um, progression? And those are difficult questions to answer, because if we go back and say, well, what was the natural history of this disease? Actually, we don't always know as much about the natural history as we should do.
0: There's a couple of things I wanted to sort of unpick from that, because obviously one of the issues around ERT is getting it to where it needs to be. I I spoke to Kim Hemsley and her team in another podcast about childhood dementia associated with lysosomal storage disorders. And obviously there's this issue around getting your enzyme that you're giving to where it needs to be. Are you able to address that aspect of LSDs?
1: No, I think that's probably one of the important factors in why some of these treatments work very well and others not so well. And it's almost certainly got something and probably quite a lot to do with how efficiently the enzyme can access the given tissues. And so if you look at the uh, tissues that respond well to treatment, let's start with Gaucher disease. Gaucher disease is a disease of macrophages for the most part. Macrophages are blood cells they may not spend all of their time in the blood but they spend quite a lot of their time in the blood and if you were giving an enzyme into the bloodstream you would expect macrophages to be exposed to it on top of that they're phagocytic cells they live their life eating up proteins lipids and things around them including um enzyme probably and therefore it turns out that they seem to be a very good target for enzyme replacement therapy um in pompe disease As we say, the cardiac muscle responds remarkably well to enzyme replacement therapy. Um, You reverse uh, the cardiomyopathy in babies with infantile Pompeii, and really, it doesn't seem to recur. Um, Although children treated early uh, with infantile Pompeii disease do go on to show some progression of skeletal muscle disease and, indeed, to show some features of Uh, Pompe disease that we never recognized before, CNS involvement, for instance, their hearts on the whole appear to continue to function very well. So heart muscle seems to respond much better than skeletal muscle. And again, heart muscle is certainly exposed to the blood uh, much more than skeletal muscle is, although there must be other physiological differences between the two tissues that might um, contribute. Um, And then if we go to some of the other diseases that really don't respond as well, let's think of mucopolysaccharidosis, for instance, where you're trying to deliver um, early on in life to tissues, bone and cartilage that are not brilliantly Uh, vascularized, um, you'd have to say that in treating the skeletal disease associated with mucopolysaccharidosis, enzyme replacement therapy has not been a great success. Um, And indeed, in treating the connective tissue disease, it is of limited efficacy as well, and we need better approaches. And then you mentioned the brain, and we know the enzyme replacement therapy given by the traditional route is intravenous infusion, can't reach the brain at all, which is why in Batten's disease, childhood dementia, they're using intrafecal delivery, um, delivery directly into the CNS to try and get around that problem with some success.
0: And I mean, obviously the other thing you commented on was the use of oral agents or sort of chaperone therapy. I know they're of in Fabry disease. And I, I wanted to ask you briefly about that aspect.
1: The approaches we have available for treating inherited metabolic diseases, including lysosomal storage diseases, when they're due to enzyme deficiency are really very similar. An enzyme isn't working. You tend to get a deficiency of its product, and a buildup of its substrate. And either of those can lead to disease, either or both. You can have disease because of too much of something or too little of something or both. And so in enzyme replacement therapy, we're trying to give back the enzyme and restore homeostasis. And there are other ways of doing that. So what we call enzyme augmentation therapy, if you like. So what chaperone therapy using a small molecule tries to do is to identify patients where they are making an enzyme, that enzyme is mutated in such a way that it isn't working efficiently and seeing if they can find a way of making it work better and often in the diseases we're dealing with just increasing enzyme activity by five six seven percent will make a significant difference most of these enzymes are not rate limiting and so if we think about uh, chaperone therapy for fabry disease as you mentioned There, the idea is that certain mutations are amenable to this therapy. The chaperone stabilizes the enzyme and allows it to get through the cell's quality control machinery to the lysosome, where it can then express its activity. And you can show that very nicely in tissue culture. And you can try and take those tissue culture findings into the clinic, where you can certainly show that uh, chaperone therapy for patients with amenable mutations Uh, does not appear to be any worse than enzyme replacement therapy. But of course, the problem with enzyme replacement therapy, for however is, and we go into this in much more detail in the paper, that it's not a particularly successful treatment. Um, But that's certainly an approach that's possible. And then the other small molecule approach is something we call substrate reduction therapy, which doesn't attempt to do anything about the enzyme activity. You leave the residual enzyme activity as it is, but you try and inhibit formation of the substrate so that the substrate is only being formed at a rate where the patient's residual enzyme can actually turn it over. So you try and restore homeostasis by slowing down uh, the buildup of the substrate, if you like. So those are both small molecule approaches that are being used in lysosomal storage diseases but could also equally well be used in a number of other uh, enzyme deficiency diseases because These are small molecules that get throughout the body. So whether your enzyme is in the cytoplasm or in the lysosome or elsewhere, those approaches should work.
0: And obviously, we're in the UK. We've just had the NHS agree to fund a gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy. I mean, are we looking at gene therapy and LSD? Uh,
1: Gene therapy is another way of directly addressing the deficiency of the protein and enzyme in the case of most lysosomal storage diseases and ideally the way gene therapy was initially envisaged was that you would deliver a functional copy of the gene to the cells where the disease was expressing itself. So if you're thinking of Pompe disease, we would be delivering functional gene to muscle cells, cardiac muscle cells and skeletal muscle cells. If you're thinking of Fabry disease, We'd want to deliver functional gene widely, really, to blood vessels, the heart, the kidneys, certainly, and maybe beyond that as well. And then that uh, gene would be expressed within those cells, uh, produce the protein, which should be able to reverse the biochemical defect and hopefully reverse or at least stop progression of the pathology. That's quite a big ask, actually. And that approach to gene therapy At the moment, certainly in our field, is probably only relevant to diseases which express themselves in the liver. And certainly, uh, there are clinical trials underway of gene therapy for phenylketonuria and for ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency. And that's because we have adeno-associated virus vectors, which we know are relatively efficient at delivering genes to the liver. Whereas we don't really have vectors that are particularly efficient at the moment at delivering to other tissues. So if you want to take the approach of correcting the gene defect in the tissue where it matters at the moment, you're definitely best concentrating on liver disease. And actually, hemophilia is probably the best example of that. It's not an enzyme deficiency, but there is now gene therapy that is very efficient at expressing uh, clotting factors in the liver. Pharmaceutical companies being endlessly innovative uh, have decided that gene therapy can be applied to a range of other diseases, particularly lysosomal storage diseases, uh, where enzyme replacement therapy is a possibility because you can use this ability to deliver genes to the liver to turn the liver into an, an enzyme factory. So although the enzyme deficiency may not actually be expressing itself in hepatocytes, if you can persuade those hepatocytes to overexpress the enzyme of choice and secrete it, into the blood, and hepatocytes are quite good at secreting proteins into the blood, then that actually acts as a constant factory for enzyme, if you like. So the theory is that you can deliver probably lower but constant levels of enzyme uh, into the bloodstream, which then takes the enzyme around the body and allows better uptake in the tissues. And certainly there's some interesting preclinical work in mice with Pompe disease that actually suggests. Uh, that this actually does give better glycogen clearance from muscle than treating them with episodic two-weekly injections. So that it's gene therapy, but it's hybrid gene therapy, if you like. It's gene therapy as a means of providing enzyme replacement therapy. So that's one way of doing it, adeno-associated virus vectors into the liver. And another way of achieving a very similar thing, which is also in investigation, is using hematopoietic stem cells. So ex fever gene therapy. So We're now starting to do it for adrenoleukodystrophy, so in the inherited metabolic disease field. But you take the patient's own blood cells out of the body. You transduce them with a retroviral vector, in this case, that actually puts the the gene into hematopoietic stem cells. You then give the patient some conditioning and an auto transplant, put the cells back in again. uh, And then they should act as, again, an enzyme factory. But this time, the factory itself travels around the body potentially enters the brain as well, because we know that bone marrow-derived cells can enter the brain and delivers enzyme to a variety of other tissues. So that's also an attractive approach to a number of lysosomal storage diseases, and again is in clinical development now for a number of
0: different diseases, including Fabry disease. So it sounds like the future is reasonably bright for LSDs? Well, it depends
1: whether you're a... (laughs) an optimist or a pessimist. Um, yes, one well, would hope that these treatments will get around some of the current limitations that we think mostly relate to getting the enzyme to the tissues where it needs to be, and that therefore they might be more efficacious than the treatments we've got at the moment, whether they'll be affordable or not. And the example you brought up of gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy is a good example. Uh, that's difficult to know um, The going price for gene therapy seems to be over a million pounds. near a two per patient, and I'm not sure if we're offering that to everybody with rare diseases. That's going to be a sustainable model for anybody, so we will have to wait and see.
0: But it would be cheaper than annual treatment for Pompey ERT at the moment. Indeed, and I think that's the the argument, isn't it? That uh, if you can
1: cure a disease and avoid having enzyme replacement therapy for a lifetime, then you're really making a saving by um, paying up front um it's not straightforward we have a an upcoming record rare diseases academy course on this very problem of orphan drugs and how we've got to the position where we are where we're going and how we're going to deal with it
0: um i think you've you know, very eloquently explained your paper and it's a beautifully written paper and it's currently available open access as well as part of that uh, special virtual issue i wanted to ask about adult metabolic medicine in general, because in 2019, you wrote a very different paper that appeared in JAMD reports looking at education and training in adult IMD. And at that time, you found there was a need for formal training in this sort of rapidly growing field. That was two years ago. Uh, are things any better now?
1: I think that depends how you look at it. From an
0: international
1: basis, uh, there's been a lot of interest in this. There have been further publications of the JAMD, and there is a group at the moment, who are working on developing a set of training requirements, competencies, if you like, for adults' metabolic medicine. Now, the problem is you can do that, but fitting that into each individual country's medical training uh, isn't entirely straightforward. And in the UK, we were initially ahead of the game in that we did actually have uh, a training programme for adult metabolic medicine. It isn't solely concentrated on inherited metabolic disease, you also have to do a bit of diabetes, a bit of lipids, a bit of metabolic bone disease, a bit of nutrition. Um, it's a bit of a ragbag, really and not unfortunately necessarily attractive to the people you need to get into this field because it's, in my view, it's a medical specialty. You know, I mean, then you really need people, uh, who are used to and happy to look after you know, sick patients. And so what we ideally would like is some form of training that allowed people from a variety of different backgrounds uh, who were interested uh, to gain some basic competencies in inherited metabolic disease. And that to date has not been easy to get into the UK training system. But going forward, we're hopeful that there is a new scheme called credentialing, which is envisaged as being something you do after completing your trainings, which might involve spending a year or two between a number of adult units, maybe also actually for the adult physicians spending a bit of time in paediatrics, because I think that's very important as well. These are lifelong diseases. You need to be able to see them from both sides. And I think that will be possible to write. It might even be possible to get it approved by the relevant royal colleges, which I guess would be the Royal College of Physicians in this case. And we'll then just be left with the problem of how you fund it. And I think that is going to be an issue. It's going to be the same everywhere. You can come up with a training program, you can come up with centers that are willing to provide it, but somebody has to be willing to support those trainees financially while they go through it. And I'm not convinced yet that the healthcare systems realize that there is the need there to do that.
0: It looks like your peacock's woken up, so I think we might have to think about wrapping up. I mean, what was what was your route? You're you're not a grown-up pediatrician, are you? You're a, you came to this another way.
1: I did. So I'm a I'm a physician. I trained in general internal medicine, but I trained before the current training systems. So I was thinking about a career in gastroenterology. In all honesty, I was interested in the liver. But then I had always been interested in genetics and gene therapy as well. Uh, And I went to do my PhD on developing viral gene delivery vectors. This was back in the 90s. And that led to postgraduate work on utilizing those to try and develop models for delivering uh, genes to the brains of mice with lysosomal storage disorders. So I sort of fell into the lysosomal storage disorders service. And from there... Uh, clinically, I developed an interest in the other inherited metabolic diseases as well, and then this training program in um, metabolic medicine came along. So I made sure I could tickle the boxes for that. And yes, I was—I'm one of only three of us, I think, in this country who are accredited in general internal medicine and metabolic medicine.
0: three doesn't seem like many for the number of patients we're presumably getting. not enough. (laughs) Um, Thank you. I think I could listen to you talking about inherited physical disease all afternoon. You're an excellent advocate for the specialty. I'm exceptionally grateful for your time. And if you want to read Robin's paper, the paper on my storage disorders is available on our website and it can be found within the virtual issues section. And if you want to see the report on adult training services, then do go to the JIMD reports website and put that details into the search bar and if you'd like to hear more from us including that podcast i mentioned earlier where dr Hemsley talks about lsd heterozygosity and neurodegenerative disease um then do search for jmd podcast wherever you get your podcasts robin thank you again for your time this afternoon
1: pleasure thanks for talking to me
0: and thank you for listening goodbye